the seasonal worker bubble. The pressure's been extreme. Beating the bots to MIQ. I don't want any special treatment, I just want a system that I can use. And the right to housing. There's been a failure of human rights. Tēnā tātou katoa, welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering here on One News. I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm Jessica Much mackay And I'm Benedict Collins. Kicking our podcast off with the highs and the lows, the peaks and the pits. Jessica, would you mm. take it away, please? Yes, mine are um, actually interesting notes um, that I just wanted to mention. One of the big things that's been brewing the last couple of weeks is the Sahara Aiden case, and I just think it's such a fascinating, interesting story and such a test for New Zealand. Uh, It's such a a fail in terms of us needing to clean up after Australia and I think it's just interesting. It's a story that's been, um, you know, around for a bit and she's heading our way soon or maybe here already. We are being asked to trust the government and how it's responding to that. And I think from a journalistic point of view, that can be a little bit frustrating. We want a few more details. We want to get a few more assurances around that. But I think it's been a really interesting story to look into and cover. Definitely interesting. And, you know, we've heard from the Children's Commissioner, Andrew Beecroft, say, look, the children need to be at the heart of all of this and be the primary consideration. I think that really is why uh, we are seeing them come back here, not only because Australia pretty much washed their hands um, of, of Sahara Aden and her two children. Children, leaving it to New Zealand to clean up, like you mentioned, Jess, but also, you know, these children, they need somewhere safe to, to live and grow up. You know, they didn't, um, you know, sign up to the life, the horrific life that they've had up to date. Um, I interviewed uh, the lawyer for Sahara Aiden, um, which is interesting, and obviously police are now investigating, which is to be expected. So it'll be interesting to see what that police investigation finds and whether it comes back with anything too concrete or what sort of controls will be put in place as well. Mm. Benedict, pick, pit from you. Oh, I had a fun peak little... Peak um, pit? Peak pit? Uh, yesterday we um, drew the um, short straw in the office and um, went, went outside to cover a protest where uh, a whole lot of um, people, people that come in for a range of reasons that they're unhappy with, um, from uh, Julian Assange um, to Epstein to... The world order to COVID nineteen, um, and yeah. Anyway, we we popped out there as um, Billy Takahika was giving a, um, a speech to the crowd and and winding them up about the media. And then he then he um, saw one news over in the corner, and he, he gave us a little shout out. And we've got some footage here to show you of the uh, cr- crowd reaction um, when when he pointed us out to the crowd. Uh, yeah, quite quite fun. <laughs> It's just pretty standard when you leave the building, eh? That kind of reaction to people, just yeah, cheers well, and crowds. It was kind of interesting, right? So, that, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. Lots of people waving at me with their yeah. middle fingers. Um, <laughs> and, but then later on, we have um, Bridge Run where our politicians come across, um, you know, the bridge on the way into question time. And that actually made their way. Normally, security kind of keep protesters down um, sort of in an area off the forecourt of Parliament and they've got all these gates, but they're all up up against the doors of Parliament, um, kind of banging on the doors and yelling through loud hailers and stuff like that just as, just before, like, the Prime Minister and all the ministers came a, came across the bridge. So kind of, you know, 
almost capital storming esque. Yeah, it was. Um, but but a much smaller crowd. We're talking like a couple of hundred. But it was interesting that they did make their way up onto the steps of Parliament because when I was down there watching the protest, Trevor Mallard came out onto the full court of Parliament and pretty much stormed up to um, the protesters, and they have their own private security, so they have high vests on and of high vis vests on and things like that. And he was he had his finger, you know, right in their faces, saying, you know, get back behind the barricade. You're not allowed to be up here as a private security. And I I actually was wondering if it was going to get a little bit, you know, more intense and perhaps even physical because, you know, it was quite a heated environment and Trev Mallard came down there and he wasn't mucking around. Um, so luckily it didn't, but it was interesting that they made their way in the end all the way up to the steps. Also an interesting point is it wasn't the only protest at Parliament and at the same time there was a group um, of greyhound protesters protesting about the treatment of greyhounds in the racing industry. They, though, were sectioned to the other end and perhaps didn't quite get the attention um, that they were after because of this protest. So, I mean, I think it, it's worth noting that there's actually quite often protests at Parliament, um, you know, on, particularly on sitting days. They come in and, you know, it's an important thing for people to be able to have their voice, but there are rules about not blocking the entrance, etc. that you you need to abide by. Yeah, mm. and, and um, while Billy might have been... Um Fired, firing us, firing up the crowd against the media. He's more than happy to come in over and actually give us an interview a little mm. while later about and explain actually why they're all there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, any pits? Uh, any pits this week? One thing I just again interesting note. Um, I yesterday in the in the one o'clock briefing that the minister gave. They, they do a pre-prepared script at the beginning and they outline the things that they want to get across. And one of the things that he was very keen to get across was the fact that, you know, we're not out of COVID-19. And I think that, and that fits into the narrative of that's why we have to be so strict with MIQ. And I think that's politically, that's the reason he chose to emphasise that. But I just thought it was really interesting that I think there is a little bit of a feeling out there perhaps amongst some that we're, we're moving out of COVID-19 or will be shortly. And I was listening to a podcast um, from the US talking about this is the new chapter in COVID-19 and because of Delta uh, and how ferocious it is, we're entering a new phase. And I just think, you know, we see with Fiji and we've seen with New South Wales that just how quickly Delta spreads and how we're almost having to relearn about COVID. We've done you know, the the main variant and then this Delta variant and how that's changed things. And I just thought it was interesting uh, context to, to listen to that with the new chapter and the US reaction and then to hear that sort of emphasise closer to home here uh, in New Zealand. And I just think it's it was something that was worth thinking about, just that, you know, I think in New Zealand we can get quite a warped view of COVID because of how well you know, we're dealing with it and how we're keeping it out. And I just think the minister used the the term, it's raging around the world. I just thought that was quite an interesting point. And even fully vaccinated people in the US now, and, and I think it's in, is it in government buildings, you know, being encouraged to go back to full mask yeah. usage, even though they're fully vaccinated, because of just how rapidly doubt is spreading throughout And right. it was, I mean, this the podcast was the daily um, that I quite enjoy listening to from the New York Times and they were talking about the viral load that is in um, noses and throats and it means that you can pass it on um, really easily to people who aren't vaccinated so even if you are you can still Mm. be a vessel for for others so just an interesting thing in this COVID world for us to percolate Mm. on. Is it a pit or a peak for me 
being back uh, uh, sitting at Parliament. So peak. <laughs> it's definitely Obviously a peak. Obviously a peak. <laughs> I did enjoy the three-week recess, though. Yeah, same. Did you guys enjoy it? Yeah, I, it was good to get some stories up. We yeah. often have sort of a pile of stories that you need to work, you'd like to work on and don't have time, and it was good getting some of those up. Yeah, that's right. So we've been back now sitting this week, first week back, so it's good to get the gang back together, not only in our office, but across the house. Um, also very interesting, I thought, this week was um, a story that I did about Judith Collins calling, uh, talking about Police Minister Porto Williams at a National Party event up in Kirikiri, in which she made the comment that um, a lot of people want to bottle her. And, you know, obviously... In, in Judith Collins style, pause for a little bit of effect, and then clarified um, that she meant bottle her like bottling a genie. And when I asked Porter Williams her thoughts on that comment, she said, look, she was shocked and taken aback because she took it to mean bottle her as in using a bottle to physically be, you know, harm someone, um, and that her daughter was distressed. And Judith Collins, you know, in her defence was saying, look, I definitely didn't mean it in that way, but I guess it just goes to show the power of words that, you know, people in leadership positions have and I think that Judith Collins is always someone who skirted the line when it's come to you know making remarks I mean I remember you know when I was at um, a, a topo uh, conference where she spoke to or you know meeting um, on the false start election last year um, you know 2020 COVID and she was saying things like did you find any in your garden and things like that so any she's COVID. Mm. yeah and any COVID in your garden so she's always skirting the line when it comes to her comments and that was another interesting one uh, for Judith Collins and one that I don't think the police minister took too kindly to. So um, that was an interesting mm. topic to discuss as well. Yeah. Anything else before we move on to our big first? Oh, yeah, another interesting little um, story that came out this week. Um, we'd, I'd arranged a little while ago, um, a couple of the um, medicinal cannabis companies in, in New Zealand had offered to sort of give us tours of their facilities and explain where they were all at. We went to um, a it's a huge, well, it could be a huge site with the ability to grow up to 100,000 plants when they're at full full steam. Um, Helios Therapeutics, which is in East Tamaki in, um, in, in Auckland. And uh, we went out there and it, and it just so happened that it, like a day or two earlier, they had actually received, and they were the first company in New Zealand basically to receive a licence to begin production. Um, of medicinal cannabis products. So we've had all these, uh, a few different companies basically trying to get up to speed and, and um, meet all these tough standards that get run by MedSafe. So they've just been um, received, received sign offs, and now they can actually start um, basically producing products, and they're hoping to have them into pharmacies. Um, for patients, so you'd still need a pres- you know um, referral prescription from your doctor and stuff, and you'd be able to get those um, yeah products in your pharmacies by the end Christmas. of the year, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm, so that was kind of an interesting little yeah. development on our long road to setting up a medicinal cannabis scheme. Yeah. Also, over the weekend, we had the dawn rates apology um, by the government, which was hugely significant. Um, and you know, well overdue, and um, and then the following day, the government announced more spaces for IRC workers, which you covered, mm. Benedict. Tell us yeah. a bit about that. Yeah, one. so uh, for, for years and years and years, we've been bringing in workers from the Pacific Islands um, to help basically pick our crops, and and they move um, from from crop to crop around the country, kind of as the season wears on, moves on. You know, they'll be moving to different crops, which get picked at different times. And of course, COVID came along and really affected the numbers um, that were getting into the country. Um, it, it, and it's kind of work that they 
they really struggle to find enough Kiwis to do that work. Often you get backpackers as well who kind of travel New Zealand and, and do picking and stuff as well. So on Monday, the government announced um, they were going to, basically from Samoa, from Tonga and from Vanuatu, um, they were going to remove the MIQ requirements um, because the company's bringing one them One way. Yeah, one way, right? So they'd, they'd still have to, I guess it's the decision for those countries to make. Though, um, you know, they still might have to MIQ on the way home, but they'll be able to come over. So basically if a, if a picking company or a, um, a company hires them through the recognised seasonal employer scheme, then they can bring them out here straight into the country and they can work. But the interesting thing is the government doesn't really know how many more are going to be able to get in, and that is because they have those MIQ requirements back in Tonga, back in Samoa, back in Vanuatu, and pretty limited capacity to deal with people coming in. So they're not sure exactly how many will be able to get in, but we spoke to um, you know orchardists and growers around the country and they were delighted that you know they were going to um, hopefully be able to get significantly more people into the country so we don't end up with crops um, you know rotting on the ground. It is interesting though, it's sort of, we didn't have time to get into this, but there is kind of a big power imbalance here between these workers coming from the islands to come and work in New Zealand you know, and, and there are concerns about the conditions um, that they work in New Zealand and, um, and whether or not they're actually making enough money <clears throat> to send back, um, whether they're actually ending up you know, better off. Yeah, so yeah. I think you know, there are concerns there that you know, there is a potential here for exploitation of these workers. And I think big picture it, for the immigration minister, it is a slight pressure release valve. So it's just a little bit of give because I think there's quite a lot building on immigration minister Chris Farfoy and on the government for dealing with this. You've got split migrant families, you've got the residency um, backlog building up, you've got all sorts of issues with skilled labour and this just gives a little bit of a twist, I guess. But not only that, right, but you've also got the farmer protests. So you had the, you know, huge demonstrations across New Zealand, farmers out in their, you know, in their, in their tractors bringing traffic to a standstill, you know, protesting against the Ute tax, against freshwater reforms, um, so-called Ute tax. Um, you, know, uh, you know, so it is, I think, the government will have been quite relieved to be able to get an initiative in here where they were, they were sort of getting you know, great feedback from, from rural New Zealand about this move, given they've been copping it so much. I mean, you go. Sorry, I was just going to say, National has obviously criticised the government, saying, you know, why didn't they bring this in earlier? Why did they not allow more RSE workers to come in earlier? Because we've heard, you know, story after story from um, fruit growers that they just don't have anyone to pick and, their, you know, their um, fruits are just rotting on the ground. So I just, I do wonder why they're just so slow. You know, you talk about relieving that pressure valve bit by bit and they've been doing that and, you know, trickling and we're going to do, you know, have a few exemptions here in terms of migrants, health workers, a bit here, a bit there. It just doesn't seem as though they've got a very clear, robust plan to reopen us to or to allow people to come and work as essential workers that are needed when you've got industries calling out for them left, right and centre and each week it's like, oh, well, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there and it's just like, yeah. man, we need a more robust, wider scheme than that. And it's coming, but I think in the meantime, the immigration minister, his line, I'm working on it, is not helping the situation and I think we are probably only a few weeks away from seeing... Quite quite big reforms in immigration because it's really a problem for mm. them. But mm. also, even, even even more so in terms of why haven't they done this sooner? You know, when the government comes out and says, "Oh, I think it's Vanuatu. Oh, there's only been four cases. You know, there's been no community transmission in in, in Samoa and Tonga." When they come out and say things like that, it's like, well, 
why have you taken this long then? And why to, to just limit it? Yeah, yeah. and then if, if there isn't COVID in these countries, why are we just limiting it to, you know, workers to come over here and, and help our horticultural and viticulture sectors? Why not open it to the general public too? If it, I mean, if it is safe to do. Also on that immigration rethink and just, you know, because we mentioned the um, Dawn Raids apology earlier, there are obviously the questions around whether there'll be an amnesty for mm. overstayers. Um, and, you know, you've, on one hand, you've got nationals saying no because that, you know, flies in the face of those who have gone through the proper processes in terms of visas to get here. But then also you acknowledge um, the contribution that the Pacific Island community has made in terms of being invited here in the first place mm. to come here and work. And, you know, we know how crucial they are. Look at what we've just announced in terms of the RS workers um, and then the dawn raids happened and so it'll be interesting to see what the government does there and the minister uh, is saying that they're waiting on that immigration reset, that that, that sort of review um, to finish up maybe early next year and that will give an indication around that as well so be interesting to keep an eye on. I think another thing that's created quite a bit of pressure on a different minister is the this MIQ voucher system and it's something that we've been doing quite a number of stories on. Um, I know Kristen Hall's done quite a few, I've done a few as well and it's just this issue of people overseas not being able to secure a spot and I think in a general sense, I think a lot of New Zealanders feel like, oh, look, it should be hard to go and come back. It's a calculated risk, all of that stuff. But I just think we've reached a point now where it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be, I can't go um, because I can't get a spot until next year. And I think it's also just this this mental drain of waking up every day and clicking refresh and trying to get these spots. And it's just been interesting talking to a few people um, overseas. I talked to a number in the story we did on Monday. And just, you know, these are tough, um, hardened people saying, actually, I feel locked out of my country. Actually, I feel like it's really stressful feeling like I can't come home. And looking at the front of... um, the passport, which is one of um, my former colleagues made this point online, she's living overseas at the moment, and it says, you know, this passport allows you to come into New Zealand unhindered and um, without barriers. And it's just interesting because that doesn't apply anymore because of this virus, you know. It's much harder to come in. It's much more challenging. So I just think it's a really fascinating issue and I think they've got to I mean when I've talked to Megan Main about this a couple of times the first thing that she says is that look we set the system up quickly thinking it would be for a small amount of time they've made heaps of improvements she said as well as the big releases they're releasing several hundred was her quote every day and um, I've asked for the specifics on those numbers because I had quite a lot of feedback last night from people being like I'm on that website every day and those numbers don't ring true to me, they think it's much mm. fewer than that. So, yeah, just a really interesting topic. Yep, for a smaller group, um, but I just think we've got to be mindful of New Zealanders around the world as well. Mm. Did you guys have any thoughts or? No, not really. Uh, I mean, we... the other the other issue that we covered this week, um, you know, earlier this week was housing, which yeah. obviously is the never-ending story. <laughs> um, was and... there a movie called that one? <laughs> yeah, that was a good little pun. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, earlier this week we had the Human Rights Commission come out saying, um, look, housing is a human right. And at the moment we're not doing well enough in terms of providing for that basic right. And so um, they're going to launch uh, an inquiry later this year and get that going. Um, but they also released guidelines uh, alongside the Iwi Chairs Forum um, and wanting that to be embedded into government policy in order to hold governments to account because Paul Hunt, the Human Rights Commissioner, says, look, at the moment there really isn't, even though it's definitely an, an, an expectation, I think all New Zealanders would expect that, yeah, housing is, is, is a human right, it's a basic right, it's something that we should all just have naturally. There is nothing in the legislation, according to Paul Hunt, that really holds the government to that. They, they can make these promises and, and then not deliver on them and then, you know, the only real you know, accountability then is at, at the polling booths yeah. and that sort of thing. But he wants guidelines to be embedded into legislation going forward so that there is no confusion and that there is always that sort of drawing back to that that expectation. The government was quite quick to to kind of dismiss that. I was quite interested in Jacinda Ardern mm. pretty much saying, look, we don't need another inquiry to tell us that we are in a housing crisis. Yeah. And on the one hand, I agree, but I just thought it was interesting to have the Prime Minister come out and pretty much give the backhand to the Human Rights Commission and their, and their plans to do an inquiry. I have to say, though, I do think that it, it's a shame that we've had to get to that level where, as politicians, they have to be held to account from an outside entity. Do you get what I mean? Like, I just think that you should be able to say to the voters at the election, this is what I've done to um, work on the housing crisis, and um, voters can say that's not enough or that's too much. I, I'm just not sure if we need that. We're in a crisis. Look at house prices do you know what I mean? I just don't, not sure if we need an, another inquiry. Yeah, I, and I do wonder how much resource and and and, and money will go into this inquiry yeah. to to like really do tell I us something like that we already know. But we've, we've got been talking that about it we, for quite yeah. some time now. Yeah. So I I tend to think that's I, I tend to agree with the prime minister on and this I, one. That, that but but that doesn't mean that she's doing a great job, you know, of of ticking the boxes. And I tell you what, the Human Rights Commission might want to be careful on that one because if they're going to waste money on an inquiry, and if they they're going to many. spend money yeah. on and resources on an inquiry that even the Prime Minister says isn't necessary, when you're already in the sights of the of the National Party who want your Human Rights Commissioner to resign, mm -hmm. who is even questioning the validity and need for a Human Rights Commission in the first place, is alongside ACT, the two major opposition parties, you give them a reason to come after you for spending X thousands of on an inquiry that some question whether or not it's needed. I'd be a bit mindful of the spend and the cost of such I an inquiry. I think we absolutely need a um, human rights commission. I think they play a really important Definitely. role. But they have limited things that they can look into, like any of those entities. And I'm in my view, I'm just not sure that this is the, this is the one to put your put your resources into I definitely think so. by the end of it we'll see press releases from National Index saying this was the cost for an inquiry that was even the Prime Minister said was unnecessary mm. so you know a word of caution there and they should be independent that's the other side but anyway maybe we're, we're focusing we're diving too yeah, deep but into I, it I, yeah I mean I, I'm still interested in whether there does need to be something in, the, in, in legislation though right that actually forces governments to 
you know, to really deliver on housing. Yeah, mm. yeah. And which that's is, a valid which point. Is the part you don't need the inquiry. Of, you know, that. They've already come up with the guidelines. Mm. You know, they've already added them in their submission on legislation that the government's pushing through at the moment through housing, urban and development. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah you might be surprised, eh, with what, with what the inquiry comes up with. Well, yeah. Paul Hunt mm. said that it was important for those affected to have their voice heard and that was yeah. an opportunity to have their voices heard. I think their voices are heard, though, through the news when, you know, the dire struggle. But, but yeah. Um, yeah. Hui and all, maybe yeah. we'll leave it there. Yeah. Close the door on this house podcast. Close the front door. <laughs> that was the Shut worst the analogy, door. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, guys, this is One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up on all of the political issues we've been covering. For One News, uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available most weeks on One News Online and check us out on your favourite podcasting app.